Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Thank you for listening to Man Listening and for your support. Our next three episodes were all recorded on the road in Nashville, Tennessee, a place I lived for 13 years. Got married, met my wife. Our second daughter was born there. Uh, Did a lot of drinking there. Got sober there. So Nashville's very meaningful to me, uh, as are these three people we're going to talk to. If you'd like to support Man Listening, just go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Dot org and look for Man Listening One Word. Thanks so much. The same ability to laugh at yourself maybe makes you more empathetic to other people's foibles and oddities and mistakes. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to Man Listening. Our guest, Wesley Payne, is a longtime friend of mine. She is best known for being the leader, um, I'm not sure what her title was, at the Parthenon, which is a critical sort of icon in the Nashville landscape. Uh, It was built to celebrate Nashville's 100th birthday. It's out in Centennial Park on the west side of town, and it has come a long way as a cultural feature. But to talk to Wesley is to understand the importance of the arts with a capital A, and how they are right there with religion, history, culture, in being the most important thing in our lives. And Wesley does a great job of explaining that. One quick apology. My microphone died. And our editor, Liz Egan, has done a good job of boosting my levels. But it's a little bit difficult to hear my questions. But that's A-OK because Wesley's answers are a lot better than my questions. Here's Wesley Payne. Where were you born? Atlanta, Georgia. Hospital or home? hospital, Crawford Long Hospital, and it just fries me that that is no longer named Crawford Long Hospital. It's it's part of Emory, which is fine. Emory can own that hospital, but don't change its name to Emory East or Emory Downtown or whatever. Crawford W. Long discovered anesthesia or was one of the people. Yes, and he's important, and dead burn, it makes me nuts that that's been erased. For your mother, your number what of how many? One. No, no, I'm one of three. Sorry, one of three. Right, I'm the eldest. What, if anything, did she tell you about her pregnancy, labor, and delivery with you? Did she say anything? Did she tell you your origin story? Not, no, not exactly. I mean, she did say things like, you know, when I was, I guess, a teenager or whatever, or college, I'm worrying about what it would be like to give birth. And, you know, I was beginning to understand that there's pain and there's joy and all that. And she said, now they give you something called twilight sleep. And and sure, there's pain, but you forget about it. It goes away. I mean, you you don't remember the pain. You just remember the joy. So I thought, "Hmm, okay. And, of course, obstetrical science has come a long way since then. As my sister's um, maintenance man said to her recently, technology has went on. So, <laughs> and so now everything has went on. Now, obstetrical science has went on. My brother is almost three years younger than I am. Just, he was born in November and I would have turned three in January. And my sister is eight years younger. And growing up, David and I were pretty close. We've, you know, we tussled and fought, but we were close enough that we were, and he tormented Sally. Oh, just teased her unmercifully, and he never did that to me. And I think it was because I was older. He would punch on Sally, and he would, oh, he just, he was so mean to her. <laughs> they're, they're fine now. That was 
childhood. And I mean, she used to say, she was a teenager, that she, it's a wonder she ever learned to talk because getting a word in edgewise with the rest of our family was really hard because we are all talkers. That she felt a little competitive to get her two cents worth in. Although mom and dad were, they were pretty good listeners and they, we had conversations. It wasn't all one person at a time now when I was in high school. <laughs> David, David is a fabulous mimic. And most, I mean, he can be kind of mean with it, but he is, he's astute. He picks up on the thing that is really indicative of somebody. And, and he enjoys people and enjoys the foibles of, uh, we, actually, we all do. Uh, and so there was, a, there was a lot of laughter in my family. Dad's father was easily, he could laugh at himself. He could laugh at other people, but he could laugh at himself, which is a lovely characteristic, I think. And dad inherited that, mother had it. I, didn't, I never knew my maternal grandfather. He, he died when mom was 15. But I think one of the things that attracted my parents to each other was a shared sense of the ridiculous. They just, they could see it in themselves and in other people and uh, in addition to other things that they enjoyed together. And we, all three of us, got that gene. Enjoyment of... Don't take yourself too serious. You just can't. You can't. I mean, there are people who do. I don't know how they live. I really don't. To understand, Wesley, what do I need to know about your mother and father to understand you? They were both interested in, in the arts. I mean, I think that the, they both knew that a good life, a fulfilling life, a rich life, ha had very little to do with money, but had to do with friendship and exposure to the arts, decent education, those things, and God, fundamentally that. And those were the things that were important in life. And yes, you needed enough money to make those possible. They were very unimpressed by money. I didn't realize when I was growing up that we, that we didn't have much. Um, and dad said later, um, one reason we had what we had is because your mother was such a good money manager. And David and I used to laugh, well, at the time we didn't I didn't. David was bothered more than I was, and more than Sally is, uh, was, uh, about not having enough money. He was more competitive with money. Where'd y'all live? Atlanta, in oh, on um, Mount Perrin Road. What'd your father do for me? He's an architect. Um, and but I mean that that's a professional. Yes. Yeah. Did your mother work outside the home? Nope. Not and after we were grown, like college and beyond, she volunteered. She was a pink lady at the hospital. She had seen, it's really interesting, dad had, I don't know whether he'd eaten something that, uh, he had a bleeding ulcer, but he was not a tense kind of type. So that was, having an ulcer was really a shock to all of us, because that's not his temperament, I guess, to be full of acid and stuff like that, that usually makes an ulcer. Anyway, he nearly died, and I think that the experience of seeing him in the hospital and seeing the medical professionals and the medical volunteers and what they were able to do to bring comfort to him and to her while she was coping with that. How um, were the arts transmitted in your life? Like, how did you catch the bug? We went to things. They went to things, like concerts. They had season tickets to the opera. The Metropolitan Opera used to tour and the, the Metropolitan would come to Atlanta for a week. My grandparents had season tickets and dad and mom got those when my grandparents didn't want to go anymore. And as his business got successful enough for him to do this, he would buy up other, other people's um, unused, I mean, friends. There were a lot of, because you just didn't give up season tickets. You passed them along if possible because seats were hard to come by. It's like the Green Bay Packers. Yes, exactly. The Green Bay Packers of arts. You would get a season ticket entitled you to five of the seven performances, one of which was always the Saturday matinee. So they played 
they did a different opera Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and two on Saturday. Oh, my God. And so your season ticket was five of those, one of which was always um, the Saturday matinee. And so what Dad would do would buy up other people's the, so he could go to all seven. And he eventually took a week of vacation so that he didn't have to get up and go to the office the next morning. And um, he would then he would buy extras if David and Sally and I wanted to go. And I brought occasionally brought a friend home from college. And man, we would dress to the nines and go out to like, dinner. What, what did you look like? What would you wear? Oh, what formals? I mean, Dad would be in a tux. And Mother would wear something fabulous and we would get as fabulous as we could. And what did that look like for you? I remember two or three high school formal. I didn't, we didn't go to much, not like, maybe people dress up more in that kind of formal today than, there were a handful of occasions. I had a kind of tangerine colored shantung, so it's a, a little um, texture to the, and it was not a big, but a skirt that was, Full enough without being billowy, very um, clean lined. Floor length? Uh-huh. And uh, uh, it had a top with kind of a scoop neck and sl sleeveless. It wasn't real strappy. That was a print with a off-white background. So the print carried the, um, the tangerine color from the skirt and some yellow and some other stuff. It's probably colors I wouldn't pick for me today, but it looked great. Where's the venue? It was the Fox Theater. Oh my God. Tina, David and I got to pick, uh, we got to go to one a year when we were young. I think the first one I went to, I was 12 or 13 and I wore my Easter Sunday organdy dress and um, that was short, that was 12. But we were, we thought we had arrived, mom and dad dropped us off because that was before he was able to buy up all these other tickets. Oh, so you, the two of you went in. Yeah, we were, we were allowed to go, to pick one and go. Well, how grown up. Oh, yes. And actually, I, we didn't know enough then to pick one. Mom and Dad picked one they thought we would enjoy. It was very tuneful, costumes are pretty. It did not instill in me a desire for the music, but Mom and Dad loved it so much. And I got to understand the music when I was approximately that age. So they went to, they had um, season tickets to the opera. They had season tickets to a, a series, a concert series that was traveling orchestras or soloists or whatever to the ballet. So that maybe the ballet was part of that, whatever that series was, because I can't imagine that they had enough money to do many season tickets, the opera and a season tickets. And maybe they didn't have that every year, but um, they would bring home programs and I wanted to be a ballet dancer. Let me just say, this body is not made for ballet. Did but you I, take classes? No, they, no, this is a really weird thing. I would love to have, <laughs> in the Churches of Christ, where I grew up, dancing was not, was something we were, didn't do. Now that was intended as social dancing because dark young people who knows where that will lead. You know, that was the... Well, it's thought to be inherently sexual. Yes, it, yes, it is. That's no a good way whether to... it's ballet or I whatever, guess. it's inherently sexual. And so I don't know whether... I, I have thought about this sometimes because at the time I didn't... I mean, I didn't press. I didn't want it badly enough to press that at all. And maybe they couldn't afford the lessons. I don't know. But I do think that much as they loved going to and being surrounded by all sorts of art forms, and much as they were, they were very supportive of my theater stuff in high school, which is really when I started, and they would come, we would do a play for one weekend or two weekends, and they would come to every performance. What kind of plays? Like what was the role that you had? Lady Bracknell in... So um, play the, plays, not, not musicals. Oh, the school did musicals, but I didn't. Uh, and I mean, we, we'd maybe do one play a year or, or maybe a fall play in a spring musical and I was never part of the musicals. Didn't want to be. Not, I mean, we sang at church. I liked to sing, but I never wanted to perform sing. 
I didn't. I don't have a very strong voice. My ear is not a particularly good musical ear, so I'm a leaner singer. I'm good if I'm surrounded by people who are better than I am. You, you mean you lean on other people? Well, yeah. To... <laughs> well, I don't want to let this go. It sounds like you're a little conflicted about never even getting the chance to go and dance. No, no. I'm not. No, no. That was I. I had a great friend, and this might have been part of why I wanted to dance, a friend from uh, kindergarten, maybe on, um, all the way through high school, who was a dancer, and a really good one, eventually. She was, and when she was a senior in high school, she was alternated dancing the Sugar Plum Fairy and Nutcracker, which is the lead. Um, so she was really good. She had that kind of reach across the footlights charisma that good performers of any sort do. And so I was a groupie. I went to everything she did. Um, maybe that was part of the reason I wanted to dance or thought I did, and I was enamored of the beauty of it. And maybe my parents were wise enough to know that was not a really good place to spend their money. Or maybe they didn't want me to dance, or maybe they didn't couldn't afford it. I don't know. Or didn't want to set you up for disappointment. It, maybe. Uh, like encourage you in areas where... And as much as they encouraged the theater, I think they were very worried about my trying to make a living that way because it's so insecure. Yeah. And I, they really wanted, they didn't say, don't do this, but they, they very strongly wanted me to have another foundation like teaching, which is what I, I got a teaching certificate with a speech theater, because it wasn't a theater major at Lipscomb. When you decided to leave home, why did you pick Lipscomb? My two main choices were Lipscomb or Harding in Searcy, Arkansas, both Church of Christ schools, and my great-grandfather, dad's grandfather, was James A. Harding, who co-founded Lipscomb with David Lipscomb, and for whom Harding is named. So you're like a legacy. Oh my, yes. All my friends from high school, I mean, we were 90... Seven or 98% of my graduating class went to college. Yeah. Were you in a prep school? Nope, public school. But it was a area that drew, there were three schools. My school was built as an overflow for the other two. So, and they were white? Oh, yeah, until forced integration. That was the year David graduated, I think. He was two years behind me in school. And after so that. You're in the city limits of Atlanta. Yep. In a 100% white school. You bet. All you won't see that now. Nope. Unless. No. And it shouldn't be. I know. But it was. That's the way it was. And we didn't think, I, we didn't think anything about it. As soon as um, enforced integration happened, there was such white flight that the school that David and I graduated from, which was, had built, been built as an overflow school for North Fulton and Northside, it dwindled and closed, and it's now a middle school. You know, Atlanta was less, I don't mean we weren't rigid, we were, but less rigid than, we were not in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Atlanta was, Churches of Christ were weird, and my parents were not as self-righteous or rigid as even my relatives. I mean, they had. they were farther from that legacy stuff, which was hard. It is definitely a burden. They were much more, and maybe it's some of this, the same um, ability to laugh at yourself, maybe makes you more empathetic to other people's foibles and oddities and mistakes, stuff like that. I don't remember there being, they were somewhat judgmental, but not like, and I don't want to, paint them as paragons of virtue, because they weren't, but they were pretty swell. Yeah. I loved them. We, we enjoyed each other's company, all of all five of us did. And that and is I, such a gift. Ooh, I know it. I know it. I thought that every family had a set of loving parents who loved their children, and the idea that people I knew, both at home in Atlanta and whom I went to school with, and when I got to college, which was a church school, had homes that were not happy, 
was shocking to me. I didn't know that. And it's sad. Very. And I'm sorry that I was that ignorant, but happy that, I I mean, that is a gift. That really is. And mom and dad, I know, I mean, I just know from common sense that they didn't always agree on everything. I'm sure they didn't. But they were presented pretty much a united front to us. And if they argued or fought, they didn't do it in front of us. And they were... They clearly loved each other. They didn't mind holding hands in public. They'd sit close to each other on the sofa. We knew they loved each other, and we knew they loved us, which was really important. My parents were, and I I think most people I knew, were happy to know and certainly be kind to people of any ethnicity. They were, however, products of their own time and upbringing right. and, and struggled to overcome the prejudices they had imbibed with the water their own growing up. Right. I have had to learn things that, attitudes that I didn't even know I had that are wrong right. and learn to think and be different. And I remember noticing, this was one of those awakening kinds of moments, when I realized that I could tell a difference in my attitudes, my mother's attitudes, and her mother's attitudes about race. My grandmother was worried that when I went to school, to college, that I would have a black roommate. That, why did that worry her? It was because of her age and her upbringing. And that was, you didn't mix. You didn't mix. And it's so sad to me that we thought that, that she thought that, that now my sister, eight years younger than me, and who went to a private Church of Christ high school, so she didn't go to public school after, when she went to high school, she, sort of, I don't know whether they actually dated or not, but she was interested in, and they, uh, yeah, they did go out a couple of times with a young man in her class who was African-American. Mom and Dad knew his parents, members of the church, and neither set of parents thought that was a great idea. Primarily, at least the stated reason, was because that kind of relationship would be so difficult, that marriage was difficult, dating and marriage were difficult at the best of times, and to invite an additional difficulty would be really way tough. What did you major in college and how did you decide what to do after you got out of college? What, what called to you? What spoke to you? Oh, theater. It was always going to be theater. And that was a problem since my two choices of college, neither had strong or any theater department. I mean, there was no theater major at Lipscomb. And if I had kicked up a fuss about where I wanted to, all my friends went to Harvard, Bryn Mawr. There were productions and, um, and uh, a good profession. Like uh, the first thing I was in was As You Like It. Mm-hmm. I was Phoebe. <laughs> and when I did an audition, the director said, that's the best glottal stop I've ever heard. Because I did it. I practiced. I, I mean, what mean, it's what a cockney does with a stop in the middle of the, you don't, there's a better way to describe it than that. But anyway, so we played Phoebe as a little bit of a cockney. Oh, wow. And how did you get a cockney accent? I had worked on it. I, I had, even before, I mean, playing around with accents was something we did in high school, my theater friends and I, and with a British accent and stuff like that. And we were enamored of accents, mostly British. And so, and then I did The Crucible and was so very annoyed because, of course, I wanted to play Abigail or Elizabeth, and I was cast as Mercy Lewis and understudied both the other two, which just... Life provides us with interesting things, and since that time, I have been cast in the Crucible two more times, 
But it's interesting to have been in that play with three different points in my life, three different directors, three different productions. They were all good. You know what blows me away about people like you and our friend Brian is that nowadays acting is this all or nothing thing in the minds of some young people. You're either going to go to New York or to L.A. and you're either going to make it or you're not. And you're going to give yourself, pick three, five, ten, fifteen years and you're either going to, and there are so many stories of people who have gone home to regional theater and all of a sudden when they're 40 years old um, they get some kind of big role or what is far more common and what I want you to talk to me about, give voice to, are people who have had a lifelong love of theater. They're in their 80s or 90s and they're doing like Driving Miss Daisy or they're doing they are finding roles for themselves in community theater and just it just brings so much joy. Oh yeah. It feeds my soul in a way that nothing else does even though I have had a um, soul-fulfilling job. I've just been very lucky. I, I had good teachers at Lipscomb in all areas. I mean I've got a good liberal arts education which is what I want and which I think a lot of people should have and don't get nowadays. Everything is so specialized, so sharply focused, and maybe that's the way our world is nowadays. But I think there is a place for, at least in undergraduate and college, for the generalist, the person who gets a look at, at kind of everything, a little bit of a look. and. I think you can maybe pick better where you want to go after that if you've gotten a look at everything. And you get, if you get the liberal arts, you learn, if you get some basic history and English literature, those things that are considered core subjects, a little math, you have an appreciation for everything. I mean, I have a deep appreciation for people who can do better math than I can because because I know a little bit about how hard it is. And there are certain elements of English, for instance, and learning a foreign language that make you better at anything you do. The ability to speak, to write a complete sentence and a paragraph will stand you in good stead. And to have no shame at saying, I don't know the answer to that. If you're in a place where you're supposed to know the answer and you say that and you say, but I'll find out. And I tell, have told docents that at the Parthenon for years. If they ask you a question you don't know the answer, say that. You can say, if, if it's true, this is my first week as a docent. I've not heard that question. I don't know the answer, but I'll find out. Do you get people who try to want to show them up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but... Also, you, you learn when you're dealing with the public like that, that at, you, can, you can say what's, what's true, what you know about the Nashville Parthenon, or what you know about the ancient Parthenon, and if somebody argues with you, you can try to figure out how to correct a misunderstanding or a misassumption, and if the first attempt at that doesn't go right, you just back off. because. There are people who will not be wrong, no matter how wrong they are. And, you know, it's, some, it, it's a no-win if you, in that situation. You're telling me things I have not heard. <laughs> right, right. Or the ones who insist they saw a mummy at the Parthenon when they were a child. Maybe they nope. did. Maybe they had a vision. <laughs> they might have been tripping. Um, I, well, I have to ask you. Yep. How'd you get one of the coolest jobs in America? I tripped and stumbled into it. And, you know. What happened? College leads to that. Okay. So I graduated with a degree in speech, which was as close to theater as I could get, with a minor in English and a teaching certificate. <laughs> my major, in my major, I was in there with all the debaters and preachers. <laughs> and actually, you know, you think about 
preachers and lawyers and stuff, they have to be actors to a great extent anyway. And I was first living with my parents so I could afford a car and find a roommate and then I moved out. So I, was, I, was, I did that for three years almost and then quit, decided to move to Nashville. Um, no job. No job, no job, but a friend was, whom I had known from college was moving back home. Her marriage had broken up so we rented a house together and uh, it's still there. It's a wonderful house um, on Overhill behind the Exxon station at the corner. It wasn't a dump. No, it was a nice place and we spiffed it up even more. We put wallpaper. It was the era of wallpaper and decorating. And we did theater together. We, that was when Circle was underneath where the Bluebird is now. Oh my word. We did, uh, I mean, she, yeah, she did some acting there too. I did Antigone and Oh, I forget what else that year. Maybe anyway. And you were applying for what kind of job? Anything I could get. Mostly, I was I was substitute teaching. And uh, the classifieds. I looked. Yeah. Um. I wasn't. I wasn't qualified to do much except teach. I, I didn't think. I mean, I didn't have a whole big scope. But I thought I wanted to teach. So I substitute taught. They did not call me often enough, and I hated that anyway. Hated doing it. Um, a friend that I met through one of the my longtime friends said, uh, worked at Hammelbacher Design. Doug Williams, who's Francis Preston's brother, had an interior design firm and a, sort of a little art gallery. It's on the corner of 29th and Birch overlooking the park. He said, I, I'll bet Doug could use some help at the gallery. So he, Doug Williams hired me as a Hannah Hostess Betty bookkeeper. I was good at the Hannah Hostess, wretched at the Betty bookkeeper. And Doug lived there at the gallery, so I would come in in the morning and open the checkbook, and there'd be three checks gone, not stubbed. And I'd say, Doug, when'd you, when'd you, how, what? He'd say, oh, uh, ask Tim Bishop. I think I'd, you know, cash checks there. Bishop's Pub, which later became Tim Angel, which is now closed. And one of my friends that I had, at the end of the first year, not even year, all but one, of the friends I had come to be with had left town, gone their ways. My roommate was one, her company, a public relations firm had folded and she was offered a job in Dayton by her major client, an in-house PR person. She left, so I was without a roommate and somebody to pay half the rent. I didn't have a good job. The others were scattering. I spent a summer, oh, in one two week period, School ended for the year, which meant no more substitute teaching. I went to work one Monday to Doug, and he said, Wesley, what are you doing here? I said, I, I work for you? He said, oh, didn't I tell you? I thought when the BI, BMI job was finished, I, you know, I didn't, no. It's job, job and it's, and, roommate, right, and the guy I'd been dating for six months dumped me. It was a real bad two weeks. Dad took the family to Europe for two weeks, and that was a salvation because when I came back, all those problems were still there, but I'd had a respite from that. I found another roommate too, as a matter of fact, um, and I had a part-time job, dining room hostess at the Sheraton Inn South, the corner of I-65 and Harding. It was not a good hotel. I worked a shrine convention. The daytime hostess was not a good, anyway. Um, we were paid $2 an hour and didn't get tips the way the waitresses did. So a f the one friend who was left, my friend Paul Downey, who had taught at Lipscomb and was now working for the Parks Department, called me and he said, how does teaching look? I said, well, school started two weeks ago and I'm still the dining room hostess. Not great. He said, come in and talk to me because I have a job that might interest you. So I did. He said, I know, I know you want to teach theater and in the Parks um, org chart, organizational chart, there is a theater position. It's never been funded, but someday it will be. And if you're working for Parks, you would have an inside track on that. Fort Nashborough has fallen under my jurisdiction, and we have just fired the woman who worked there. Actually, she quit, but when she quit, she threw the keys and said, F you. So she's not coming back. And um, I think that this might be something you would enjoy and be good at. And I thought to myself, the fort, 
history, living history, costumes, theater, <laughs> teaching. This is me. I'll make it into theater. That's right. That's we'll, right. We'll do a show. We've got the stage right here. It'll <laughs> totally. be outdoors. Totally. So I started working for Parks in October of 1974. And it, the woman who was left working there, there, had, there are two positions there, and she resented me because she didn't get the senior job. Well, s senior is a, I mean, a relative term. Yeah. And um, so she eventually managed to get moved to, she was the courthouse information lady and left the position vacant. Her summation was, now you can be with your friends and I can be with my friends. So we hired somebody who we knew was going to quit to go to seminary in the fall, but he had come from rugby and the rugby Tennessee and the whole history of that. So he seemed ideal and indeed we are still friends this many years later. Bless his heart, I talked his ear off the first month. So Parthenon, how long? <laughs> so I was, I was at Fort Nashville for almost five years and the director of the Parthenon retired. And on paper, that was a lateral move. I, by that time, had gotten a job audit and made the person in charge at Fort Nash Nashboro a director of a facility. And we'd hired more staff. And we'd done the living history, gotten great press. Of course, given who had been there before, anything I did was gonna look real good. But we'd gotten good press and did a, we, we did a great job. So on paper, moving to the Parthenon, and I was eligible because it was lateral, and at the same time they opened up a theater position for the first time, and I had to choose which to go for. And I decided, because I'd been doing theater all along, that I could continue doing that if I had a day job. If I took the theater position, it would be night work and would eliminate me from doing acting. And it was a technical theater position, which is not my strong suit. And besides, the Parthenon was interesting. What about it? Well, it was, it was great architecture, and I remembered having visited relatives in Nashville when I was young, and Daddy taking us to the Parthenon and being knocked over by it. Yeah, I didn't understand that completely then, but I had spent the time at Hummelbacher looking over into the park and looking at the Parthenon. I, could, I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool, and I, there's enough historian in me to be interested in the ties between Nashville and Athens and this idea Nashvillians have always had about being like the Athenians, interested in education and culture and promoting, Nashville promoting itself as a beacon of that, this Athens of the South business. A little aspirational. Totally aspirational, <laughs> yes. Um, but it's good to have aspirations. Absolutely. So I thought that it would be really easy to sort of bring this place up to something it wasn't at the time. I can polish this up. I can build this up. I can. The reputation when I came was, oh, anybody can have a show at the Parthenon which was probably true. If Mr. Parker, the director, liked you and or liked your work, you could have an art show. There were, there was a gallery that pretty much is, is configured like our main gallery now. There was a hall gallery that led into a great big gallery space. And there was another hall gallery that had over the top of it the grotto and it was concrete floored, painted red and black with built-in uh, display cases that were like old-fashioned retail places where you had a little key lock and you'd slide a glass thing back. And it was filled with a mishmash of objects, artifacts from West Mexico and Middle Tennessee no context, no explanation, little. So we got Greece, Mexico, and Tennessee. And at the kind of a nexus. Kind of... 
At the far end of that gallery was a desk where they sold tourist trinkets from Mexico. There was a, also, I don't know if you remember, but at the time there was no entrance where our entrance is now. You entered from the west, climbed up the stairs and went through the door into what's the treasury and then went into the naos, which is where the Athena is now. And there was a little four foot model marking the place. And you had to know there was something downstairs to go to in order to find the art or you needed to go to the bathroom and that's where the restrooms were. So the end wall where the doors were on the east end was also the end of the downstairs. How many years did you spend there? 42. And now when you go in there, not only is there Athena, not only has it been, now it's part of taking in what Nashville is all about, you know? Yeah, I think um, there had been more of the, the building was seen as a place to visit. It is accurate on the inside as well as on the outside, but it wasn't a place you went to see art for sure. And there was very little, almost none explanation, interpretation, nothing like that. And so in that sense, you're right. There was, it was, People drove by, would take their out-of-town guests to drive, but there's the Parthenon. Oh, what does that mean? Why? And people still don't understand until they come and say, why? why is this building here? And this Athens of the South, and, what it, and it was built for the exposition and all this, none of that was available before unless you knew the right questions to ask, and people didn't. Okay, number of visitors then, number of visitors now. Five, six years ago, we were thrilled to be at 162,000 a year. Now we're over 300,000 a year. Well, I say now, in, to, in 2019 we were. So before COVID. Right. Yeah. And um, it's coming back with a vengeance. Yeah. There is a recognition internationally as well as nationally about some of the things Nashville has to offer. Obviously music. And I remember in the 80s when I learned that we were called the Third Coast because so much recording was done here because it was less expensive than either New York or LA. And there was a point at which things were cleaner than you just described on Lower Broad, but authentic. Now, I don't think Lower Broadway is in the least authentic. People, Something's lost. Something is lost in the um, spiffing up and shining I don't even know how to say marketing to the tourists. I mean, I think that this happens in a lot of places that draw, not just Nashville, but that draw tourists. And the, the temptation that is often succumbed to is to provide a semi-fake, semi-real experience for the tourists that is that originally when people came to visit Nashville and wanted, they, they, they saw the real thing. Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, for instance, is not, I mean, I, I, I don't know because I don't, I don't go down there much, but the country music scene has never been particularly interesting to me. You can't live in Nashville and not absorb some of, and some understanding of that. Oh, you can't watch Ken Burns without understanding that this is an art form exactly the same as the opera. Yeah, yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I did watch the beginnings of right. that and I haven't seen. And I, one time when I was taking somebody to the Hall of Fame before it moved downtown when it was on Music Row, and I realized in looking at that explanation, I, I think the and I tell people all the time who ask what else there is to see in town, that's a place to go. Even if country music's not your thing, oh, the explanation of strands of music, musical heritages and styles that came and fused into something that is called country music and is, has now expanded and gone other ways, it's so interesting. And you can't, even if you don't particularly like the sound, you, you can't not respect it. Well, there are people who don't respect the Parthenon. Yeah, you know, that's true. So you're going to have to say, 
this is why this particular building is a replica of something that's not just old. It's right. Not just something that was around, you know. Yes, it has a meaning and the copy has a meaning too. Their meanings are fused and some, they each have a separate meaning too. If uh, we get struck by lightning between now and the time we talk next, and the only thing that survives is this recording, um, what is your legacy? Well, I think partly it's with help having brought the Parthenon to a point at which it is respected by people here as well as by visitors. We've always had a harder time getting local people to think there's reason to visit more than once. And I don't believe anybody does anything like that alone. I led the charge maybe, but I was also at the right place at the right time. What is the message of Respect that? for, well, several things. Respect for the aspirations Nashville has had for itself. Respect for um, the importance of architecture, great architecture, the fact that that sculpture you can walk around in, the best stuff is. Respect for the importance of art and history to every person alive. What do art and history convey to us? What do they do? Well, like, well, like any art form, theater, music, dance, visual art, history, all of those things can show us something about ourselves or just calm the chatter that's in us so much of the time. Even seeing paintings of or photographs of nature is um, restorative and doctors will tell you that. It's not something I'm making up out of my head. People need to see what other people say on canvas, whether that is something that is simply and pointedly beautiful or something that is challenging, something that makes you think or something that you just can admire because of the skill, because of the beauty, or the, all those, and admiring someone else's skill is a good thing too. History we need because we need to know where we've come from, to know where we're going, and to one hopes, sometimes despairingly, that we won't repeat. It's to give us a sense of ourselves and who we are. I think those things, both art and history, are vital for those things. And I think that the Parthenon specifically, as it represents, as I said, that aspirational idea Nashville has of itself, but also represents what Americans as a whole have thought about our country. I, there is, it is no accident that the main government buildings in Washington and in most state capitals are Greco-Roman in design because I think our founding people were very deliberate in wanting to leap over the monarchical and feudal systems that they had come out of and say, we're not like that. We're not going to have a king. We're not going to have serfs. Not autocratic. Not autocratic. Not authoritarian. Of the people. Of the people. And that is now both the Greek Athenian democracy and the Roman Republic were finite. They were elite. They were died. Yes, they, that's exactly right. And they were not perfect even of their experiments and nor are we. But the idea that the founders had was we would rather be like that than what we have just come away from. But were resurrected in a new form. Yes, one hopes. And, and I think that knowing that, 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 that the Parthenon can, can act as a marker for that and a, a referential, a reference point. Um, Touchstone. Yes, and that it's a way to um, make 
concrete, no pun intended, um, this ideal. And I hope I've left a legacy of good acting in theater too. Yes, yes, you have. Uh, I, um, I so admire you. Uh, I so respect you and I so thank you. You're welcome, Stuart. I always enjoy talking to you and, and to find that we have Georgia in common yes. and some religious heritage in common. Yes. It's very interesting. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. And now Wesley Payne has retired from the Parthenon, but she is still active in community theater, active in her community in East Nashville, lived close to where we lived in Lachlan Springs on the east side, which has now become incredibly hip. We'll be back with another interview from Nashville with uh, a kid my friend's age. She's not a kid, just graduated from Vanderbilt Law School next week. So thank you, Wesley, and next week, Sasha Gumbar. Thanks, guys. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp-Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A big shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening from the very beginning. Thanks so very much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. People appreciate when they don't feel like you uh, have come to your opinion because of the type of person that they are or because of preconceived notions about them. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.